You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. From the introduction to Supernatural Horror in Literature, an essay by H.P. Lovecraft. In the fiction of Lovecraft, there are people who are not what they seem. Sometimes they look normal on the outside, but secretly are monsters on the inside. Sometimes they're monsters on the outside, but have an inner life of profound poetic beauty. His writing provides a strange mixture of the macabre, the poetic, and the noxious. And as we'll soon learn, the same can be said of H.P. Lovecraft himself. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today, we welcome back author and researcher Scott Poole. Scott previously joined us to talk about monsters in America, and again to talk about the life of TV monster host Vampira. In his latest book, he tackles the complex subject of H.P. Lovecraft. Regular listeners will know that I'm a fan of Lovecraft's fiction. We've had two previous episodes that discussed Lovecraftian topics— our episode on Cthulhu still remains in the top 10 most downloaded episodes. And our crossover episode with the Lovecraft Geek, who is Lovecraft scholar Bob Price, is also a very popular episode. Poole's new biography is called In the Mountains of Madness, The Life and Extraordinary Afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft. And a link to his book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. There are several biographies of Lovecraft out there. Perhaps S.T. Joshi's two-volume edition of H.P. Lovecraft, A Life, 
I guess could be described as the most encyclopedic reference volume for biographical material on the author, but I think Poole's work's a very accessible and detailed take on what's certainly a complicated story. If you're unfamiliar with Lovecraft's writing, it can be a daunting and challenging task to take on, but if you're a fan of his work, you may find that learning about the writer is itself a daunting task. Poole does an excellent job of throwing light on the entire quivering mass of Lovecraft's body as it lies there on the threshold of the library. He doesn't shy away from the disgusting bits, and he doesn't lose sight of the simple truth that every real person is a complex mixture of good and bad, and Lovecraft is definitely no exception. But why is Lovecraft important enough to get a special episode? Because he has influenced American horror in immeasurable ways. A recurring theme on Monster Talk is our discussion of where did that idea come from? Lovecraft's fiction has inspired millions of people to take up pens and write. Some have written direct copies of his style, and others have taken bits of influence from here and there. And Lovecraft himself was synthesizing elements from yet other writers, and perhaps his greatest mark on the world is not the words he himself wrote, but the millions of words he inspired. That remains to be seen. But his influence on writers like Robert Bloch, Stephen King, Ramsey Campbell, and films like The Evil Dead, John Carpenter's The Thing, the TV show Stranger Things, heavy metal bands including Black Sabbath, role-playing games and board games, and more video games than I can even begin to name. This is a kind of creeping, tentacular cultural aura of influence that's eerily appropriate considering the nature of the old man's writing. Scott Poole dared to pick up his flashlight and to go down those stairs. Let's hear what he discovered as he joins us for some... Monster Talk. All right, welcome back, Scott, for your third visit to Monster Talk. Yeah, Yeah. sounds good. You're basically up there with, like, uh, Steve Martin and uh, Alec Baldwin. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Right, I just dropped the initials, you know, when I'm actually... Yeah. All right. Oh, and, and today we're here to talk about your book, In the Mountains of Madness, The Life yes. and Extraordinary Afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft. And yes. this is uh, one of our special literary episodes where we're not really talking about skepticism, but we will be talking about some monsters and some monstrous aspects to this great American writer. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 and some skepticism, probably. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to give a, a quick shout out to one of our listeners, Rick Duffy, uh, for his input with this show, too. He just gave me a couple of questions that he would like answered during the course oh, of this episode. Excellent. So, um, so yeah, yeah. Well, let's get started then. So, yeah. to begin with, Scott, how did you become interested in H.P. Lovecraft and what inspired you to write a biography about him? So in one way or another, I've been interested in Lovecraft for a good three decades. Uh, I actually first encountered him in high school um, in uh, an anthology that was put together uh, by Marvin Cooper of uh, Weird Tales writers. Uh, It wasn't a particularly good anthology. Uh, It was made up of mostly sort of lesser uh, Weird Tales writers, but th- there was one Lovecraft story, um, which I think tells you a little something about how his popularity has grown just over you know that time period. Um, and then in the 1990s, when um, the uh, Penguin editions that S.T. Joshi edited and annotated uh, heavily became available, uh, and really for the first time we were all sort of able to read Lovecraft as Lovecraft wanted to be read, 
that was kind of my reintroduction, fascination, and, and obsession. I didn't really write about Lovecraft until around uh, until about 2009, 2010. There's a couple of sections uh, in uh, Monsters in America that deal with him. Uh, and then subsequently, I'd written a few articles and, and, and essays. And it seemed, uh, right in the book, uh, after Vampyra, it, it actually seemed a kind of a natural progression uh, from, you know, looking at um, the monster tradition more broadly and the horror, horror tradition more broadly in American history, then focusing in on a, a Vampyra, who obviously is a not particularly well-known cult figure, but, you know, I think very important to kind of the emergence of uh, she, she's sort of the grassroots of horror, and so it, it made a lot of sense to me to then go back and look at what, in the 20th century anyway, is to me uh, really the, the the origins of of much of the contemporary, not all of, but much of the contemporary horror tradition. Tradition thought of very broadly, fiction, film, but also horror culture and fan culture. Okay. So I was almost so in a way like you know I, after kind of a lifelong interest in Lovecraft, I think in writing the book and and this I think tell is the one of the ways it's different from uh, sort of a uh, a standard biography is that it is about Lovecraft as a phenomenon as much as it is about Lovecraft as a person although it's really about both. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was going to mention that I, I I really enjoyed the book and I thought you did a really good job of. Uh, not only covering the events of his life, but also contextualizing what's happened to him after his uh, death, which is uh, in many ways even more interesting because I guess that's what most of us encounter in our in our lives as if we get into his material. But I, I want to talk about um, some of his biographical elements. When when we sure. talk about his childhood, or like we think about yes. how I noticed in the book, you took special effort to defend his mother. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, his <laughs> peculiar youth and and how his uh, relationship with his mother and his aunts have been, uh, how you felt about them, and how they've been dealt with in other biographical material? So uh, yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting question because uh, I've uh, probably taken more criticism. Um, other than one other part of the book that we might talk about later, I've taken more criticism for the reexamination of Sarah Susan Lovecraft, his mother, um, than any other aspect of, of the book. And I actually didn't see myself as uh, defending her, um, although I, I think in the end, because I had to engage with some of what had been written about her subsequently, I, I ended up having to defend her, in a sense, in the text. Um, but I, I just uncovered a lot of interesting material that suggested to me that um, other interpreters of Lovecraft going back to the 1970s, in some ways going back to his sort of first interpreters, uh, August Derleth in, in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, that they had really um, worked pretty assiduously to create a picture of her in which she was um, the grasping mother who uh, was responsible for his early reclusive tendencies, responsible for him essentially dropping out of law school, responsible for him uh, not attending Brown University, which she later claimed that he did, but he never did um, in, in some of his correspondence. 
and I found that that just actually did not represent uh, the nature of their relationship, uh, just from what I learned about her from uh, essentially the world's largest H.P. Lovecraft collection at the, the John Hay Library uh, at Brown. What I found instead was... Um, a woman who certainly was uh, considered odd for her time, but, I mean, in a way, that's a sort of a compliment to be considered an odd woman at the turn of the, the, turn of the century, especially in upper-class Providence. And uh, also a woman who was very interested in supplying H.P. Lovecraft with anything that he needed to pursue any interest that he ever had, uh, whether that was in literature or his interest in chemistry, or his interest in astronomy. Um, she made certain that he was able to do that. And there's a sense in which I think that, you know, she she created H.P. Lovecraft instead of the way she's often been presented, which is, to be frank, that she sort of needed to die <laughs> before <laughs> he could then blossom um, and, and one of the things that struck me about that is that that's such a common narrative with male artists, um, that they're being held back by grasping females in various ways. And then when they like break out of that, uh, cocoon, then like, you know, suddenly, you know, they blossom into a beautiful literary, uh, butterfly. And, um, and, and I was seeing sort of the, the, the same thing in the portrayal of, of, of his mother, uh, and sometimes it, it got pretty rough. Um, there was actually a, um, you know, a, a biography in the 1970s um, that has a chapter called The Monster Mother uh, uh, describing her. Um, and, you know, just looking at it as a historian, I, I found that that representation was based on hearsay, uh, flimsy evidence, missing evidence, evidence we don't have, uh, a lot of authors, biographers, and interpreters quoting one another. Um, so that's that's the basis of my uh, reevaluation uh, of, of her. Although if you go on Reddit, it's because I'm a social justice warrior. Ah, well, there's always that. <laughs> which I actually thought, which I actually thought, <laughs> this, this is how uncool I'm getting in my old age. I, I actually, when I first, somebody called me that on Twitter, I, I actually thought it was like a compliment. I was like, oh, wow, a social jet, like, you know, I'm like Frederick Douglass or something, you know, and uh, <laughs> turns out it's a it's a bad thing. I, it's intended know, to right? be a pejorative, whether one chooses to take it as a, as so as I think one's own choice, right? Yeah, we, yeah, we could yeah, be this, considered uh, social justice warriors too, so you're in good company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, at SJW is the, the Sure, person. and I also think that the, the, the fact that that, that term – also, the last word also sounds like worrier. Always, right? It, see, it, it, the the punter in me <laughs> is always amused by that. No matter what the evil intent or, or the, of the person throwing it, it's like, hmm, that's funny. What? <laughs> yeah, we are worried about social justice. <laughs> anyway, uh, Scott, you mentioned Brown University. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Lovecraft's education and what prepared him to be a writer? Well, you know, he had actually very little pre uh, preparation in certain respects to, uh, for his his writerly career. Um, he was a voracious reader, if we are to believe his own account and um, the account of others, and I, I, I tend to to do so. 
he was actually reading Edgar Allan Poe um, in the late 1890s. And so, um, you know, he would have been eight, nine, uh, ten years old. Um, uh, he was reading Sherazade and uh, The Thousand and One Nights. Uh, he was poring over Greek mythology. Um, he may or may not have come in contact with the stories of Ambrose Bierce um, at an early age, the Civil War veteran who becomes a supernatural writer in the 1880s, 1890s. He definitely had read him by 1919. Um, and he did actually write, um, uh, we don't have the manuscripts for all of them, but he did actually write some uh, essentially juvenilia um, stories that are partially suspense, partially supernatural, partially detective tales, um, really kind of imitations of, of Poe. Um, but then, he, he, you know, he was also reading just enormous amounts of, uh, uh, of pulp magazines, these turn-of-the-century magazines printed on cheap, uh, on, uh, cheap paper that um, dealt with what we would think of as a variety of different genres, although the term wasn't common at that time. Uh, he would have been reading detective stories, adventure stories, Old West stories, even romance, in fact. Um, and so um, he, he had a, a really, really diverse set of literary influences, along with his deep interest in science. Um, again, particularly astronomy. At, at one point before his education faltered, he thought that he was going to be a, a astronomer and sort of aspired um, to that. Um, and these things actually come together in interesting ways, I think, in his, in his fiction. Um, his interest in what he called the infinite spaces, uh, the void, um, that's really sort of comes from his fascination with astronomy. Um, and then his interest in all things supernatural, uh, certainly from a little bit of Poe, although as I talk about in the book, I don't think that Poe ultimately influences him as a writer um, as, much as, uh, as much as some have claimed, uh, but also from Thousand and One Nights and uh, Greek mythology and, and other issues. I, um, we, we've got a lot of questions about Lovecraft prepared for this interview, but there's one that's kind of a a meta issue that I want to ask you about. Oh, I love meta issues. <laughs> so Lovecraft is, is this interesting character, but like a lot of writers, he himself uh, is a very complicated fellow who's got some things about his life that once you dig into it are really troubling. I think for a person um, in modern times, at least I think with my, he certainly, especially if we're going to be social justice warriors, he is really <laughs> troubled. He's a, he's a troubling character. So how does a teacher and a writer deal with this historically significant figure in a field whose views on these issues are somehow, they're sometimes so reprehensible yet whose body of work is so influential. I mean, how, how do you handle that? Uh, so I, I think I can actually even do you one better in the sense, in terms of how problematic it is, in the sense that um, it, it's not just his personal attitudes or personal prejudices. Um, obviously, uh, we encounter that with many writers of the past, many writers of the present, I would add. And, um, you know, that's simply very common um, I think that one of the things that makes Lovecraft different, and some of his apologists have 
resisted this idea. But one of the things that makes Lovecraft different is that um, his hatred of immigrants, his um, very strange, and we can talk more about why it's so strange, anti-Semitism, his really just utter hatred uh, of uh, black Americans, uh, that actually became a part of his writing in some of his most famous tales. Um, the Call of Cthulhu uh, is uh, the best, worst example of that. It's peoples that he considered, in his term, in his word, degenerate, who or primitive, who first hear the Call of Cthulhu, who are most responsive um, to this ancient elder god uh, who is going to wipe out the, the human race. Um, and the horror at Red Hook, um, another one of his tales from uh, the mid-1920s, uh, does something very similar. So um, he's problematic really not just in his individual prejudices, but also it invades his body of work. It's part of his body of work. So I think, you know, as a writer and a teacher, you do two things. First, I suppose it's something you don't do, and and that you don't try to defend it or separate it out from the body of work um, or go at it as if, well, we're just going to mine the material for the things that we are comfortable with um, and and sort of write off write off the rest as a product of the times. That's the favorite thing to do with many of his most ardent apologists who don't want to talk about this this topic and just say, okay, well, everybody was racist in the 1910s, 20s, and 1930s, uh, which, as the book makes clear, is not the case at all, was not even the case in, in Lovecraft's Circle of Friends. So you don't do that. What you do is... You use that material, I think, to think about the broader historical context in which we're not talking just about the prejudices of one individual, as deep-rooted and sometimes as pathological as they were, but we're also talking about a system, a whole system of historical racial oppression that was part of the 1920s and the 1930s And I also always like to make the point, has not completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is one of my problems with with the product of his times argument. When you say that, it's as if, well, you know, all of that was just in the past and now it's gone. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, I I think that we have plenty of contemporary evidence that that's simply not the case. Uh, Yeah, I I call them family reunions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, other people call them Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. But but yes, uh, so I I think that um, I I think that the thing that has been that or or that that was most strange for me in writing the book and then particularly when it was first released and was being reviewed and and commented on a good bit, um, I think the strangest thing to me was the absolute insistence that we really not deal openly with this particular issue. Um, 
even though there are ways in which we can analyze it in such a way that I think that we can both understand him better, his work better, the times he lived in and the times we live in now better if if we look at it that way. I mean, I think some of Lovecraft's defenders have on this point ha- have made some good points. Um, S.T. Joshi says, for example, who, of course, is, you know, sort of the foremost authority on on Lovecraft and wrote a two volume thousand page biography. Um, he makes the point that, you know, Bram Stoker, for example, held, um, you know, uh, very reactionary attitudes on race. Uh, John W. Campbell of Amazing Stories held, you know, not only reactionary attitudes, but uh, was very involved in the far right and that the at mid-century and was an opponent of the civil rights movement. Um, both of these figures have awards named for them, you know, are recognized as sort of giants in the field of, of horror and, and, and of, of, of fantasy. I, I think that um, I think that we shouldn't separate Lovecraft out from that. And yet, uh, he his wife was Jewish, wasn't she? And he, he had friends who were Jewish. He, that's exactly right. And and I think that that is also part of what complicates the story. So, um, you know, in 1924, he marries Sonia Haft Green, who um, was a Jewish woman from Ukraine. Um, uh, an editor, an author, and, and a, a actually an independent entrepreneur, uh, kind of almost sort of a typical uh, 1920s new woman, as they called uh, as they called those those types of figures at the time. Um, their marriage was short lived, and uh, they essentially separated. They married in 24. They essentially separated in 1926. Um, Sonia thought that they had divorced in 1929, um, but Lovecraft actually never signed the papers. And so technically they were still married when she remarried later. Um, Lovecraft himself didn't want a divorce from her. Uh, and then, you know, he's he's also close friends and correspondents with Samuel Loveman, uh, who is Jewish uh, and gay and a close friend of Hart Crane. Um, you know, he's close friends with James Morton, who in the 1920s uh, is so dedicated to the earliest African-American freedom struggle that he's publishing pamphlets about the topic he moves to Harlem. He debates Lovecraft about this issue in letters. Um, so, you know. Um, and Julius Schwartz it, is his agent. Julius was Jewish. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, he he ne- he didn't quite. So so their uh, business relationship comes quite late. It does it, in I, his life. Um, but but you're absolutely right that that he, and that he was certainly open. He was certainly open to that. It's I, I only mentioned it because I got to meet Julius and ask him about it. <laughs> right. Oh. And well, well, that's interesting. What uh, uh, can you tell us about that? Well, just I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I met him at DragonCon one year when he came. He was uh, okay. one of the guests of honor because of uh, his long work with comics. 
And uh, and I just happened to see him standing around in the lobby. And so I walked up and talked to him for a few minutes. But I, I said, you know, you're one of the few people I've, I know around who actually, you know, at least corresponded with Lovecraft and worked with him. Right. So, but I was curious, how did it affect things with you being Jewish and him being so anti-Semitic? And he said, I don't know if I can get his words exactly, but it was along the lines of, you know, I had heard that about him, but it never came up. Yes. And, and that was basically the extent of it. They, they had a very professional relationship. It, the the fact that he was Jewish just never was an issue in any of their work together. So Interesting. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, it's been very hard to, although I think it's important to do so, um, separate out a bit um, some of the pretty horrific language that, of course, Lovecraft knew how to use in his letters um, about race uh, from his dealings uh, with individuals. Um, at least when it came to, um, at least when it came to Jews, he, on the other hand, um, you know, everything that he ever said about, uh, African Americans is, is nearly unprintable. Um, and, um, this, except some of it was printed and shows up in his tales. Um, and I think that that makes him a little bit different from, are very different from writers in the past uh, who have held similar attitudes, but um, it maybe did not infest their stories um, in such a straightforward way. Yeah, I've seen some uh, excerpts from some of his comments about foreigners that he encountered, and the way he described them was almost identical to the way he describes some of the, as you put, degenerate, what well, he put it, and you didn't put it that way. You're just mm-hmm. repeating what he said. But the, <laughs> right. the way he right. talks about these weird degenerate, uh, you know, races of people uh, right. and in his fiction. And what, his monsters. Yeah, it, and in his monsters. Uh, all is basically the same way that uh, maybe at the best that he talks about foreigners in uh, in his regular correspondence. I mean, it's poetical, but horrible. I, Very I don't, dehumanizing. Yeah, well, right. It's, it's absolutely dehumanizing. And yeah. I, I think I've actually said before that I think one of the things that hurts Lovecraft what is um, just the his his – the, the sheer torrent of language that came out of him at all times uh, in his stories and his letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he definitely was talking about things that he actually believed. Uh, unfortunately, you have the combination of, uh, at least in my opinion, this is not everyone's opinion, which is something I talk about in the book, but in my opinion, you have the cons the the um, the complication of someone who is both an incredible and extraordinary writer um, and also a, a, a very committed racist um, who was able to say those things um, in um, you know really sort of um, uh, in a in an almost hyper indulgent uh, type of uh, language and discourse. You know his writing. It, I I should say something positive about it because we've. <laughs> <laughs> We've hammered on it quite a bit about his life and his, his belief systems. But, I mean, I, there's so much really enjoyable stuff in his work. I feel – I have this analogy. And here, here I'm going to have to throw an explicit tag on the episode about this analogy. But I, I, I've i described it – like, and sometimes it seems like um, 
you get stuff like this. It's like you there's a poop uh, with some beautiful succulent corn in it, you know. <laughs> it's like that corn looks great, but oh, it's stuck in a turd, you know. And and I feel bad about that. I mean, some some of his work is beautiful, just fine like it is. But some of his work is like that. You can get these really lovely little nuggets out of it, but you're still working out of a turd. So. Uh, well, and I, you know, I think that it, uh, you know, I think there's some things about Lovecraft's writing that, uh, you know, critics have spoken very unfairly about. He is often accused of of having uh, adjectiveitis, uh, just sort of the inability to, um, you know, exclude a, a long list of adjectives. That's in some of his stories, but not all of them. Um, it is true that he had often had difficulty uh, writing dialogue or clear characters. <laughs> uh, many of his protagonists uh, seem to be sort of, uh, they're sort of interchangeable and very much like himself. Um, but the thick descriptions of places, um, the incredible attention to detail uh, when he's describing a place he's visited or indeed a place he's only read about. Um, famously, you know, he has one story uh, set in Paris, which, you know, he never crossed the Atlantic. And uh, also his his description of, this goes back to what we were saying earlier, just his, his description of both mo- his moods or the moods of his characters and his monsters um, actually uh, can be hypnotic. Uh, at times, and that's actually how I think of his his writing. It's um, y- you you have to dive into it and be prepared to dive deep. Uh, he's not an you know he's not an author for summer vacation reading. <laughs> you know um, he really is. Uh, as I think actually all great writers, he has to be deeply engaged before you really get uh, what what is there. I, I uh, would throw this in that like my wife has just started reading her first Lovecraft story. So I she asked me what Which book. One? Well, I'll tell you. She first she asked me what book should I start with, and I said the dictionary because that's my running joke <laughs> on Lovecraft. And she laughed, but she didn't believe me. But I, I started her with Shadow Over Innsmouth, and she has provided me with a list of like twenty five words she had to look up to understand what the hell was going on. It's great. So. <laughs> Uh, I usually say Shadow of, uh, uh, of Rensmith as well, actually. It's a, it's yeah. a good one to start with. It really is. So, I, I, you it's know what? Good bef- for the vocabulary. Right. Well, it, you can't. <laughs> right. Literally, every one of his stories is going to have some words in it you don't know. There's just zero chance you're going to hop into this as a modern American and not run into words you've never seen before. Not only that, but I would suspect that was probably true for a lot of the readers back when he was writing the tales. Even then, <laughs> yeah, he, this is absolutely the case, especially when you consider that you know um, Weird Tales, uh, Weird Tales magazine from 1923 onward um, had you know um, a, from what we can tell, and it's always hard to tell exactly how texts circulate, but from what we can tell, you know, it had a fairly working class, lower middle class audience. Um, you know, it it they were very demanding stories. Although, as it turns out, they they also were some of the most popular stories in the long run, at least um, that that Weird Tales ever 
ever published. Um, there was enormous demand, um, and you know this is sort of understandable, and I think the nature of fandom. But immediately after his death in 1937, there was enormous demand to reprint a lot of the old stories that um, that you know may not have been everyone's favorite, you know, at, at first. So this is a little bit of a departure from what we've been discussing, but I came across a couple of sources that said that he probably suffered from sleep paralysis. So would you agree with that? And how do you think, if that is the case, how do you think it influenced his writing? So um, I, so I, I've come across that as well. Um, I have not found any, you know, really solid evidence for that. Um, I think that where it comes from is the fact that he did, and you can tell this from his day book um, and also his correspondence about his own stories, how his stories came about, um, he seems to have been an incredibly lucid uh, dreamer. Um, and he actually was a person who slept through most of the day uh, and worked at night. And uh, some of his very interesting stories, uh, you can tell this. <laughs> the Dream of the Unknown Kadath, um, The Outsider, um, what are called his Randolph Carter stories, which was sort of a, a returning character that he had, Silver Key. They're all stories that are in different ways about um, the sort of fuzzy, ambiguous line between dreaming and waking. Um, there's actually one, it's not so much a story, it's almost a kind of a strange prose poem uh, called um, Nirlathotep. And speaking of a word you have to look up and practice pronouncing. But um, Nirlathotep, uh, he apparently actually began writing it in a state between waking and sleep. Uh, he actually um, tells a story of, of of waking up with a pen in hand. He always wrote with a pen. Or not always, but he hated typewriters and um, uh, only typed a few stories in his life. Uh, and he, he actually uh, broke up, woke up, you know, writing this tale out. You know, he's sort of in the middle of the first paragraph. Um, so I don't know if we could ever really, you know, make a hard and fast claim that, you know, he suffered from sleep paralysis. I, I suppose I would say, I suppose I would say I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> to learn <laughs> that that was the case because um, he seems to have, an, have had, and his characters have in turn, an incredibly interesting dream life um, that uh, finds its way into his stories and are responsible for many of his stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually kind of envious of his dream life. I, I I occasionally have dreams I remember, but almost always don't. And when I do remember them, they're so mundane. It's sad. It's <laughs> well, like, same here. Brain dumps. I, I actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have felt the same sort of envy because he – you know, and and some of this, of course, you we're extrapolating from his fiction, which obviously he was was adding elements to. But I mean, he the, he he does seem to have been able to control his dreams to some degree. Um, it it he, he wasn't a writer, <laughs> and this shows in many of his tales. Um, uh, this is this is 
uh, probably the major criticism I would have of him as a writer is he just he simply did not want to revise. And I, I think part of that is that, you know, he he was recording dream experiences in, 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 in some cases. Um, and his correspondent friends are kind of co- constantly, you know, urging him to, you know, rewrite this, change this around, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he, um, he had very little interest in that. I, you know, as, as I can understand that. Yeah, he, he, if people are making, he's one of those people who, uh, in in, in uh, American letters, that people love to speculate on. You know, was he racist? Well, yeah, but was he was he gay? Uh, was he right. uh, was something wrong with him? You know that 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 you know, did he really right. believe in these magical things he was talking about? This sort of stuff. The right. things, a lot of these things, can be you know quickly resolved if you actually go back and look at the source of the rumors or whatever but some are more problematic or uh, intriguing um i am thinking here though about um he uh he reminds me of someone with asperger's syndrome uh you know i I wouldn't want to i hate the whole idea of diagnosing people but he was an early precocious reader and he seemed very uh monomaniacal about a lot of the topics he liked I don't know. A lot of it sounds like that, and uh, I, you know, th- that's not meant as a diagnosis or anything. I just have a lot of experience with a- Aspies in my real life and love uh-huh. many of them. But it just it seems very familiar to me um, that part of his life. So, hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars, eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, (laughs) paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, I, you know, I, I, I think that you know, I, I, one of the things I hope comes out in the book, though, is that although, um, and, and interestingly, uh, a, a writer that I think he's comparable to in certain ways, in certain ways not, but a writer he's comparable to is is Kafka, 
And um, one of the ways in which he's a bit like Kafka is he actually went through these long periods of almost complete seclusion, um, followed by, um, you know, an almost like (laughs) exhilarating, like, you know, bursting out into the world and traveling as much as his limited budget allowed and visiting, you know, people who were on his correspondence uh, uh, list, his long correspondence list. And I think even his his marriage and and brief move from Providence, which he loved, to, to Brooklyn, um, although in the end he ends up hating and despising New York City and moving back and I am Providence and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the very fact that he did that is in some ways very, um, very shocking in comparison to what we know about his, um, his pretty reclusive, uh, his pretty reclusive youth. So, um, so it almost so- sounds a little bit like bipolarism. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps. Like another I, pet I, diagnosis thing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you know, uh, obviously I, I hope it also comes out in the book that, that you know, I'm I'm very wary of, 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 of psychoanalyzing him in, in part just because as a historian, you know, we're, we're, we're warned from the beginnings of graduate school on never to do that yeah you know? right. it, it um, is a it's not only is it probably it's speculation and it's probably inevitable to be wrong at at the worst Unfair. and unprovable no matter what you know <laughs> right. interesting to talk about <laughs> it, it is interesting though i i think i understand the impulse because yeah. you know it, it 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 would be easy to go through um the DSM and find a lot of things that Lovecraft seems to match up with just in his, his personality, uh, because there's no doubt he's, he's an eccentric in, uh, of the highest order. And, uh, and so, um, but you know, I think that's part of what makes him complicated and interesting. But consciously, I, that's, it seems like it's an affectation that he would, you know, call himself Some of an old, it. yeah. So, we good Some point. Of Some of it, right, right. So. He, 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 he definitely, though, uh, created, you know, different personas um, at different times. And I think also uh, one of the things I like about uh, Lovecraft is that he was very open about the fact that he was that he was doing that. Um, this even actually goes to some of his political and, and cultural beliefs. Um I quote him at one point in the book, um, essentially saying that, um, you know, uh, he realized that many of his political, social, cultural ideas were ultimately illusions that he used to kind of keep himself safe from, you know, the cosmic dread that he believed in. It was sort of what kept him from being a full-on nihilist in many ways to hold on to these traditions that he thought were ultimately illusory. And uh, you mentioned a little bit about his correspondence, and it seems like Lovecraft had a a large network of correspondence over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Certainly. I'd be happy to talk a bit about it. Um, So we actually don't have anywhere close to um, all of the letters that he wrote. Uh, I believe it's S.T. Joshi who suggests that um, he wrote perhaps as many as 100,000 letters in his life. Um, And then, unfortunately, he did not save letters back to him. 
Um, so we don't have that. Um, but uh, Arkham House Publishers, uh, August Durlist outfit, um, published uh, numerous volumes uh, of his correspondence stretching from the 1910s uh, until his death in 1937. Um, he, there were some people in his life that he wrote to every single day, often letters um, that ran to 30, 40 pages in his very cramped um, writing hand. Um, we also, unfortunately, this would certainly be the mother load for Lovecraft scholars. We unfortunately don't have any of the letters um, between uh, Lovecraft and his wife. Um, she apparently uh, burned all of his at one point, um, mm. and again, he never saved letters anyway. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he. I, I mentioned in the book he he, um, he. he, you know, he he almost creates a kind of an early fan network. Uh, it's a little bit like a, you know a, a Reddit forum or w- one of the old. Uh, internet original internet fandom forums in the way that uh he and um other aficionados of of the the weird tale genre were um were circulating letters to one another on all kinds of topics uh not just horror and fantasy but um architecture which was one of his passions astronomy uh all of the sciences his criticisms of religion, his criticisms of metaphysics in general, what they're reading, the books that they're loaning to each other, and then talking about the books they're loaning to each other. So there's a there's a strange way in which he always maintained a very lively social <laughs> existence, um, even when um, you know he was spending a lot of time at home in Providence. It's it's interesting to me because coming from what what seemed to be a almost sequestered form of childhood. He and, and with his uh, fascination with the 1700s, it, it seems like he almost tried to make himself into a pamphleteer before he found out about these other uh, networks yes. of writing, uh, writing his little papers on astronomy and, and sharing them right. as newsletter. It's just it's so neat because I feel like he in some ways would fit in so well with modernity, even though he hates modernity, you know, <laughs> like right oh, now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I actually... I actually have a sneaking suspicion that, um, although he would have told everyone that he despised it, um, I have a sneaking suspicion he would have loved Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, um, that he would have loved Twitter. Yeah. Um, that he, uh, I think he would have loved Instagram, in fact. Um, it, it's, it, but at the same time, um, you know, yes, he, he, he could, at least one of his personas was ultimate enemy of modernity. Uh, the mechanical civilization is invading, um, you know, the old good old ways of the 18th century, which happened to be, you know, his personal golden age. Um, and uh, uh, and yet, uh, yes, I, 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 I totally agree. I think that uh, I think he would have loved the speed of communication and, and, and email and, um, you know, um, and Internet forums. Oh. Lovecraft on Twitter is a funny idea. It really is. I don't know. Unfortunately, with his vocabulary, I think Twitter might be a problem. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Only 140 characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely somebody who would write long threads, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. 
the 140 word character um, uh, limitation would probably have driven him driven him mad and then he would have fainted as he does that's right, so I, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I i was i was thinking about the uh there's been this uh, long-running thing where fans of lovecraft want to believe that some of the things he constructs in his stories are true and i, I um i was thinking about the fact that he writes stories where he explicitly in his real life disagrees with the premises being carried out in his stories, which I think is kind of fun. You can find clear evidence that he doesn't believe in the stuff he's writing uh, just by looking outside his stories. And um, one of them has to do with the fact that many of the plots of his stories have to do with consciousness leaving the human body and moving to another body. And uh, But even in um, if you go to Reanimator, Herbert West Reanimator, uh, he's sure. constantly talking about how, oh, you've got to hurry because if the brain gets damaged, well, then the person's personality is damaged, right? So he knows. Right. He knows that everything is the brain. And by the time you get to right. Whisper in the Darkness, you've got him talking about, no, 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 we just pull the brain out. You know, we <laughs> Yeah, the, the brains in jars story. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, he, he sort of remained this kind of odd kind of uh, materialist, even uh, in, you know, as he's writing these stories that involve occult grimoire and, and, uh, and ancient gods. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of the thing that has made his work uh, continue to, continue to, to remain popular um, in that there are obviously stories uh, the color out of the space of the color of space uh, at the mountains of madness um, that uh, really are, are are what we would think of as science fiction horror and um, so that's why he you know obviously has been so influential on things like you know the original alien uh, the 1979 alien and um, I think, uh, in general, horror film since um, since the 1960s, uh, particularly in the work of um, of John Carpenter, um, you know, you see Lovecraft again and again, and it, it's because he, you know, he he partially because at least he skirts that line um, between uh, an interest in the supernatural and um, and and his own. Um, historical and and physical materialism um it it is true that you know almost every couple of years there's a book uh that appears claiming that um that lovecraft you know was channeling uh some sort of mystical forces that he met alistair crowley that you know et cetera et cetera but um you know, there's a mountain of evidence that that Lovecraft was not only an atheist but a, a lifelong uh, <laughs> uh, militant atheist who um, who believed that matter was all that there was. Um, that the basic question was, um, you know, is there such a thing as spirit? And his answer was, well, we don't have any empirical evidence for that, so no. Right. But but he did like to fawn over the Greeks. <laughs> he did. Oh yeah, he, he absolutely did. I, I think there actually is something in that too. You know, in that, and then in his later interest in horror, in that um, I, I think that in a way his materialism um, kind of set uh, his imagination free. Um, his belief that sort of. The imaginary life was the only life where you would experience the realms of the fantastic. 
Um, and so that became a big playground um, to him um, in a way that, you know, it never would have if, you know, he actually believed and, you know, actually held to occult beliefs. Uh, uh, God, that's unimaginable. I mean, like he just would have been writing these very serious tomes, um, you know, filled with unpronounceable names and mixing up <laughs> Hermeticism and Kabbalah and all the other things that early 20th century uh, occultists were doing. And it would be pretty dire reading. Mm. So, Scott, you mentioned that a lot of uh, Lovecraft's personal correspondence has been lost to us. But how was his creative writing preserved after he died? It's a interesting, complicated story. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the sort of the short version. Um, sure. He 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 really wanted um, his heir, his literary heir, to be um, his young friend Robert Barlow. Um, that is who, um, in in a written statement and a written message, he wanted to be his literary executor. Um, Barlow, because of um, a variety of reasons, distance, age, um, not exactly sure, I think, at first how to proceed in in actually being a literary executor for Lovecraft, really kind of loses this position to another one of Lovecraft's admirers, August Derleth, who begins uh, Arkham House Publishers. Uh, in the late 1930s, and really its only purpose was to publish Lovecraft's work. And Derleth is interesting, plays an important part in my story, plays an important part in the story of everyone who's written about Lovecraft, because he exercised an enormous amount of influence over the Lovecraft legacy, um, really up until the time of his death um, in uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and uh, Derleth is, is an interesting character. He's he's a problematic character in many ways because <clears throat> he preserves Lovecraft, but at the same time he actually corrupted significant parts of Lovecraft's work and manuscripts. And um, for a number of decades, I, I mentioned those those Penguin editions in in the 1990s. A little bit shockingly, that's actually the first time that we're, we were really able to read Lovecraft as Lovecraft wanted to be read um, mm. before we were reading um, heavily edited materials from Derleth, uh, as well as what he called, um, I've always loved this phrase, uh, he called them uh, po- uh, posthumous collaborations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Speaking of the occult. Uh, by which he ba- he basically meant he found a story idea in Lovecraft's day book and ran with it and wrote it and sold it, published it and sold it as, you know, a collaboration between himself and H.P. Lovecraft. So, so even in the 60s when um, some of these great, uh, beautifully designed, hippy-dippy designed colors, uh, covers of... Uh, of Lovecraft's work begins to come out from Ballantyne and, and, and others. Um, it, some of it is Lovecraft. Some of it is Derleth. Some of it is both of them. Um, so uh, some have said, and I, I think I, I tend to agree with this, that some of the early critical rejection of Lovecraft comes from the fact that 
the critics weren't actually reading Lovecraft. They were reading imitators, uh, pastiche of Lovecraft tales, um, Lovecraft tales that had been very, very heavily edited. Um, this is actually another way in which his work is a, a bit similar to, or rather his experience was a bit similar to Kafka's. I, a lot of your book is on the weird second life of Lovecraft, or his material at least. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, certainly. So, you know, I would say probably more than half of the book is um, about um, the, you know, the Lovecraft phenomena. And w- one of the things that has interested me about him is that there are actually more there are actually more, uh, and I will explain this odd statement. There are more Lovecraft fans than people who have actually read Lovecraft. Oh, that's got to be true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've met and and talked with a, a number of them. I, I talk about some of the experiences with that in in the book, where um, actually a number there, there's a, a a pretty substantial number of millennial fans of Lovecraft who have really scant knowledge of the actual stories. They they may have read The Call of Cthulhu. Um, they may have read The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And, that's, and, and then they may have read a book or two about him. But that's really about it. What they're really into are uh, the films, um, either um, direct adaptations or influ- heavily influenced by Lovecraft and kind of the Lovecraftian worldview of cosmic horror. Um, and then um, also very important, have particularly actually since the 80s, um, have been the tabletop role-playing games. Uh, Sandy Peterson's Call of Cthulhu series. Um, and then in the last few years, just actually an explosion um, of these really very quite complicated Lovecraft-based board games that are really role-playing games themselves. Um, and uh, that that combined with a couple of appearances in uh, video games. There was an Xbox game a number of years ago called Call of Cthulhu. There's another one that was announced at uh, E3 actually this summer. Uh, that's going to be out on consoles and on PCs uh, in the fall, and, um, and 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 then just sort of his shadow, I think, as um, uh, if if you a sort a person who you know if you and a writer that if you understand him, you understand sort of the deepest levels of the nature of horror fiction. Um, and so a, a kind of a fandom has built up around that. But again, um, there's a somewhat ambiguous line between that really dedicated fandom in many ways and people who have actually read all of his tales, which is fairly easy to do. I mean, there's three short Penguin volumes of his work. He wasn't an incredible, of short, short stories. He wasn't an incredibly prolific writer. Um, But as we talked about earlier, he's not an easy writer. Um, (laughs) He's not even close. You, um, uh, it's, it's work. (laughs) And, uh, and some some fans seem to have been able to you know go to that level and really get into his writing and, and understand what how it can affect you on a number of different levels. 
Um, others just seem to be perfectly happy, you know, playing around in the world of Lovecraft with uh, the the films and the video games and the the, the RPG RPGs. And just for clarification, he was not an easy writer, and easy writer is not a Lovecraft film. Just wanted to clarify. That. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's not. <laughs> Although uh, there, there are some I love hallucinatory, uh, the hallucinatory uh, aspects <laughs> of easy writer are a little bit. That scene in, in the cemetery, yeah. <laughs> right. So we've got one final question, and uh, sure. so we've had you on the show before and asked you uh, who your favorite monster is, and uh, from memory it was Bride of Frankenstein? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So we thought we'd do a slightly different uh, take on the question and to ask you which is your favorite Lovecraft story or which are your favorite Lovecraft stories? Oh, absolutely. Um, so um, – I actually have a uh, real affection for some of the early tales of Lovecraft, uh, the kind of pre-Call of Cthulhu tales. I suppose if I was pinned down to uh, one story, I would say it actually is one of the later tales, the 1931 Shadow over Innsmouth. Um, But some of the early stories like Dagon, um, The Tomb... Um, there's a story I'm particularly fond of from the early 1920s that's been unfortunately generally ignored, but I think it's going to make a comeback, uh, called Hypnos, um, that is very interesting and very strange and actually presages some of the things that he writes about in his more famous post-1926 period. Neat. I, I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast and, uh. It, oh yes, yeah, yeah they're, they're actually excellent. Yeah, and, and I was gonna—I'd like to—I'll refer the listeners to that if they want to check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the cool thing about it is they went through every Lovecraft story, and then, oh, including the right. collaborations, but then they've gone out right. and gone into the stories that were mentioned in his uh, the supernatural horror and literature. Yeah, the essay that deals with um, you know sort of the progression of uh, of writing about the supernatural. Exactly. And he, it's a great essay, and he's he's got so it many is. references. And now they're going through the works that he referenced in that in that work. And, and oh, talking. and so wow. Arthur Mackin and exactly uh, Dunsany and, uh, and uh, lots of others. EFO, oh, I can't remember his name. I'm I'm terrible with names. Um, I'm terrible with many things. It's just <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I let me do this. Let me say um, we'll probably have to wind up here. Um, and, okay, and say. We'll do our little outro thing. So I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us again, Scott. We really appreciate you talking about thank this writer. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. I enjoyed doing it again. I always like to talk to you guys about this stuff. So thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzno. You just heard an interview with author Scott Poole about his new biography of H.P. Lovecraft titled In the Mountains of Madness. A link to Scott's book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. While preparing our interview, Scott and I got into a little debate about a particular short story written by Stephen King and whether or not that story was a Lovecraft pastiche. It's a fun discussion, or at least I think so, but I didn't include it in the main interview, and if you'd like to hear it, it is after the credits of this episode. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself or my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. 
If you'd like to find the opinions of Skeptic Magazine, you could make your way to the dusty shelves of Miskatonic University Library. Head back to the special collections and look for a particular book. Though, come to think of it, ever since that odd incident with that peculiar fellow Wilbur Whateley, they've been very reluctant to let strangers in. So maybe it would be easier to just go to your local newsstand and ask for a copy of Skeptic Magazine or to try out eSkeptic, the free weekly newsletter. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thanks again for all your support, especially for the books. Karen and I have quite a lot of research material now, and sometimes Amazon doesn't include your names or contact information so we can thank you personally, but we appreciate all of your donations immensely. Thank you again for your Patreon support. Because of you, I'm able to attend Crypticon in September in Kentucky, where I'll be giving a talk about science and monsters. Here's a little more info about that convention. Attention all listeners. We are hearing reports from all over Kentucky that something big is happening. Strange creatures have been seen roaming the hills, goblins emerging from caves, a goat man was spotted near a train trestle. There have even been sightings of an eight-foot-tall humanoid creature covered in hair. What's going on in the Bluegrass State? To find out, you will need to go to CryptidCon, Bigfoot Monsters and Legends. Head on over to Frankfort, Kentucky, September 9th and 10th. At CryptidCon, you will meet Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot. Nick Groff from Paranormal Lockdown and Ghost of Shepherdstown. You'll learn from top researchers in the field, Warren Coleman, Lyle Blackburn, Stan Gordon, and many more. CryptidCon will be an action-packed weekend with vendors, seminars, and even a Bigfoot hunt. Go to www.cryptidcon.com for all the details. That certainly sounds like fun, but if your tastes run a bit more towards skepticism of monsters, you might want to hear from our friends at the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry about the 2017 CSI Con. Hi, my name is Barry Carr, and I'm here with Tom Flynn and Jim Underdown talking about the uh, upcoming SciCon conference this October in Las Vegas. So, uh, Tom, Jim, what are you uh, you looking forward to coming out to SciCon? I cannot wait. I will be hosting the disco party on Saturday night, and it's is it a zombie disco party? If you want to dress as a zombie, that's fine. That's what we're building it as, a costume party, so come as you like. Yeah, and uh, we're actually going to have cash prizes and uh, dancing and drinks. Is it true that the grand prize will be a big bowl of brains? Well, leaving the brains and the zombies aside, this is a uh, conference with some heavyweights in the skeptical community. For instance, we have Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, James Randi, Eugenie Scott. The list actually goes on and on. We have almost 40 speakers coming or more. 
We have workshops, of course, entertainment, as we mentioned. Anything you particularly want to see? Uh, my dear friend uh, Richard Wiseman will be here, also from the UK, author of Quirkology. I can't wait to see him. And don't forget Richard Saunders from Australia. It's going to be Richard's busting out all over. It's the richness of Richard's. <laughs> it absolutely yeah. is. I'll be gambling, too, at some point. No, no, skeptics do not gamble. I, skeptics well, don't gamble. I we do. know the odds. We I don't ha- do if, that. If my experience last year is any indication, no, no, skeptics no. do not gamble. Skeptics win. I have a Some system. Skeptics. Harry, I have a system that is guaranteed to win. I'm going to grab a stack of chips and run. <laughs> there That's you go. <laughs> okay, the uh, New Yorker writer Maria Konnikova is going to be oh, receiving yeah. the uh, Ballas Award for critical thinking for her most recent book. Right, The Confidence uh, Game. Yeah, cool. Maria was a speaker last year. She spoke about The Confidence Game last year. This year, she's talking about her new book, which is about luck. Ah, so what, what better? What right? better, better talk about yeah. luck? She'll vindicate me. The Skeptical Toolbox people will be there. Ray Hyman, Jim Elcock, Harriet Hall. And speaking of skeptics groups that are coming, we have the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The whole uh, the whole show, the whole crew is coming this year. It seems a little skeptic heavy, don't you think, this conference? This is the Skeptics Heavyweight event of the year. It so, does yes. not get better than it this. It does not get better than this. So we hope to see you there. It's uh, October 26th to the 29th at the Excalibur Hotel. It's the, the one that looks like the big castle. You know, you'll see it when you fly into the airport you see the towers rapunzel's there it's the one that looks like the walt disney opium dream so come check us out in las vegas wow that sounds like a fun convention i wish i could make it this year i hope you can i will be attending dragon con in atlanta in september hopefully on a few panels there and i'll post more information about that when i have the details don't forget there's a bit of fun horror literature discussion after the credits of this episode monster talk theme music is by peach stealing monkeys thanks again for listening For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Well, here's what I need to do. I need to ask about this Stephen King pastiche question. So uh, if you have just a second to talk about that. So there's this... Stephen- I, do have a, I do have a second. All right. There's the Stephen King story. <laughs> I think it's for she, maybe more than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, talk about it. Sure, sure. Jerusalem's Lot's the name of the story. It appears in Stephen King's collection of short stories called Graveyard Shift. And in our correspondence leading up to this interview with you, we, we I mentioned that I thought that was a pastiche of Lovecraft, and you said that you didn't yes. think so. And I wanted to, to talk about why you feel it's not, but I think first we may be – how do you define a Lovecraft pastiche? Because there certainly are a lot of things out there that I think fit that bill, but – uh, so actually, that's my that's sort of my answer, and 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 is is kind of like what's behind my rejection of 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 that label for that story. I, I you know it's very clearly uh, it's actually very clearly influenced by Ensmith, obviously, because you've got this 
heretical, you know, schismatic Puritan sect. And um, you've got the uh, the New England small town, which I think is something that um, where dark things are happening, which obviously is something that Stephen King kind of took over to a large degree, I think, from, you know, from Lovecraft. But, um, you know, when I think of a pastiche, I think really very specifically of this kind of um, paint-by-numbers approach to Lovecraft, where there has to be discussion of, you know, three or four members of the Elder Gods pantheon, um, and... Um, also, you know, uh, overuse of the adjective eldritch, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's eldritch and we know it's eldritch because they keep telling us that and, um, you know, tentacles and a mention of the Necronomicon and, uh, you know, all these things. And so to me, pastiche is actually a, a much less sophisticated kind of influence than what I think we see in a lot of King's work that has been influenced by Lovecraft. So so th- that's why I would have avoid pastiche. There, there's no doubt see, that that story, um, Skeleton Crew, uh, the novel Revival, um, elements of Tommyknockers and from a Buick 8. I mean, there's no question that those are heavily influenced by but, Lovecraft. But, but this one sticks out to me. But do you see pastiche as pejorative? Is that why you avoid it? Uh, I do see it as pejorative. I, I see it pejorative in part, uh, specifically in relationship to Lovecraft, just because there were so many practitioners of it. I mentioned in the book that Durlith at one point is writing this whole um, this whole series of Cthulhu stories. One of which, you know, ends with like the the human race has to nuke Cthulhu uh, in order to in order to save themselves. And so um, this kind of putting together a, a Lovecraft story as if it's a, a Lego kit is kind of what I think. Of I as, see. That's as, interesting. So. The reason I'm, I mean, pastiche really means, you know, it's essentially we're talking about cutting and pasting. Right. right. Well, so. so, but look at the elements of this one story. So I, I'm not saying that it's it's not a poor story, and I don't mean it's a mere shadow of, of Lovecraft's work, because I think it's 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 transcendent at least in as much that it's it it picks up the tools of modern and more accessible writing and, and tries to construct a similar tale because it takes place in New England. It takes place with a, a man coming to an ancestral home. Uh, it's, it definitely uh, echoes the rats in the walls with the uh, continued uh, noises in the walls. There's, a, uh, as you mentioned, there's a, a, a cult uh, at work. Uh, there, are, there is no Necronomicon, but there is a, a mysterious tome, the, the Mysteries of the Worm. And right. um, the narrator is a male who works with a subordinate male. Uh, <laughs> the right. much of parallels. Yeah, much of it is uh, written in uh, diary entries, and uh-huh. uh, th- th- there's so much about it that seems to me like it would have been a Lovecraft story. I think if Lovecraft had that story sent to him, he'd rewrite it, stick in more Eldritch, throw in some more God's names, and and, and you know <laughs> make a day of it. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, which he, he he often did. I I mean, I think part of it too is you know it, it's. Um, it's, I think with Stephen King especially, it's, um, you know, Harold Bloom's idea of kind of the anxiety of influence, too. I mean, um, he, 
in reading Dance Macabre, you, you, you know, you, you learn that one of the things you learn is that um, Stephen King wants to be influenced by Lovecraft. And um, I think, you know, the making of his dark small towns, I mean, uh, Castle Rock and, 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 and other places in New England are, are, are certainly evidence of that. Yeah, it seems more Lovecraft um, than Faulkner, right? So, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Well, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think uh, maybe it's just um, – the sour feelings that I have about the term pastiche. I yeah, guess, yeah, is yeah. Uh, just because there's so many bad examples of Lovecraft pastiche, you know, over the last <laughs> 50 or 60 years. I've, and, I've contributed and, to and that body. I, I also like, I hope it came out in the book, you know, too, that like I, I, I think that Stephen King, not only because of, of, of Lovecraft's influence on him, you know, really ought to be taken a bit more seriously by academic critics than is generally the case. I'm sure he will. But you know what? In the meantime, <laughs> but unlike Lovecraft, I, he's he's probably going to be okay. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, he's fine. Um, although this, this does seem to be, this is apparently something that has always rankled him. Um, that's maybe a discussion for another day, but yeah. Oh, you mean um, the, the dismissal by uh, academia? The dismissal by academia, the dis- yeah. dismissal by sort of the 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 the, the critical establishment. You yeah, know, and, it's and interesting. I, yeah, I mean, he's got to become an old master first. Well, I, I can tell you that when I was exactly. in high school, or not high school, when I was in high school, I was reading him. But when I was in college, I, at least one of my English professors went on and on frequently about how good the book. Uh, misery was because not only did it tell a great story, but it talked so much about the the writing process, and it was just a masterful uh, meditation on the writing process. No, yeah, that's that's a great book, and I, you know, I, I think he he obviously suffers too from uh, suffers. I don't know is the word, but uh, you know, it, essentially every word that he writes, you know, makes it into print. Um, and, and then if he wants to, you know, include everything that an editor cut out, you know, it ends up back in there, like the, you know, 1700 page, right. The stand and the, the incredible volumes for the dark tower that, I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. Which I, I can't even, yeah, I, I, that seems like something I would enjoy, but something I've never, I don't know. I can't get my arms around the idea of it sort of, you know, it's become so sprawling, but, um, yeah. But yeah. Wheel so of time was, material uh, type stuff. So. It's that pretty- was my. Uh, that was why I had had that reaction to uh, what we'll call the Jerusalem's Lot gambit. Yeah, <laughs> that, I, that's why I started with asking because I thought before you know anytime you have an argument or you feel like you have a, a, a contention, always check your terms. Make sure you're arguing about the same thing. So that's right. a good point. Yeah. <laughs> that, that All right. I, what I take away from this is that you're wrong. What? <laughs> Leave that in. Don't edit that out. <laughs> and done. All right. Thanks again, Scott. I really appreciate Thank you joining you, us. Scott. Good to chat with you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.